please uh, join me in welcoming back Dr. Whitney High, who is an associate professor of dermatology and pathology at University of Colorado. Um, again, he received his medical degree from Mayo Clinic and completed residency at the University of Texas, where we're sorry, where he was chief resident and completed fellowship at the University of Colorado, where he is on faculty there. Um, he's authored numerous articles, chapters, and three textbooks on dermatology. He also has a law degree and an advanced degree in engineering, and he is certified in tropical medicine and considered an expert in infectious dermatology. He will be giving a talk right now on dermatopathology, so please welcome Dr. High. Good morning, everybody. So uh, uh, as Claire mentioned, uh, uh, I'm a uh, professor of, of both dermatology and pathology. I have a dual appointment. And I practice both dermatology and dermatopathology. And in fact, over the years, I probably practice more dermatopathology than dermatology. And uh, so, so the point of the lecture today is to convey to you important points about dermatopathology. And so I thought about this lecture a great deal before I, I, I gave it. I give lectures all over the country on all, all kinds of topics, but I didn't have a lecture like this. So I had to actually make this lecture uh, from scratch. And so as I was making it, I thought, wouldn't it be fun if you came to a conference and you learned about something you really had no idea about before you came into the room. Uh, so, so that's what the lecture's trying to do. It's trying to teach you a little bit about dermatopathology and even the practice of general pathology in a way, uh, and try to teach you about something that you probably have no idea about at all. It's not just teaching you the finer points of managing this or managing that or an alternative way of doing this. This lecture should really be, I hope, kind of stunningly new for most of you, because we all take dermatopathology reports for granted every day. They're, they're changing hands and they're going back and forth, but you probably have little idea about what actually goes in to the work product, and so that's what I hope to achieve uh, in this lecture here. Uh-oh. Having all kinds of technical problems here. Okay. Uh, so, so first, uh, the study of uh, microscopy and histology. Here's an uh, antique microscope. Microscopes were developed about the 1600s, uh, first in Netherlands, and Van Leeuwenhoek was you know, the first person who came across this idea of looking at things under the microscope that he thought might be alive, and he described red blood cells and spermatozoa and bacteria and things like that. But these early microscopes, and, and you know, we have a person in the department who collects antique microscopes, they're really primitive and they're hard to use and they suffer from poor illumination and everything else, and I don't know how anybody got anything done. Uh, back then. But about 1792, the word dermatopathology first appeared in the medical literature in Europe. And about 1844, the word dermatopathologist, which some people can't even say, uh, when I go some places they can't even introduce me really, uh, but dermatopathology first appear, appears in the literature. And then the early interest is really in Europe mostly. Uh, and then in about 1900s, there begins to be some interest at places like Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, or in Philadelphia. There begins to be some early interest in dermatopathology. And by the 1950s, several of these large academic institutions are offering training in this subject. And, and that goes along fine. And about 1973, about two years after I was born, I, I was born in 71, so this is a while back, 1973, they develop uh, an actual joint board. So there's now a joint board and there's a certifying exam. So if you're really a dermatopathologist, you've taken this, this certifying exam. A and this certifying exam is administered jointly between the Board of Pathology, the American Board of Pathology, and the American Board of Dermatology. And they administer it jointly. 
Uh, there were early influences in Europe. In fact, the word biopsy that we use every single day, oh, I'm going to biopsy this, I biopsied that. The word biopsy didn't even exist until Besnier uh, kind of coined the term in the early 1900s. Uh, and so he was the father, one of the fathers of dermatology in France. And so he actually invented the word biopsy to describe the taking of a small sample. This person, everybody know Derrier? Everybody heard of Derrier's disease? It's not something you see very often, but everybody's kind of familiar. Uh, with the disease. So Derrier was the person who really proposed using the biopsy often. Before that, some dermatologists, even European dermatologists, thought it was really, really vulgar almost to do a biopsy, that if you had to do a biopsy, you were admitting you didn't know what it was. And, and so you know, there's this attitude in early Europe that if you needed to do a biopsy, you were a lesser dermatologist. And so Derrier, who was a wonderful dermatologist, amazing dermatologist, obviously has diseases named after him, was one of the first people that said, you know what, a biopsy could be useful in a lot of situations. We should just do it. Uh, and, and so he was one of the first people that pushed for, for biopsies. Uh, and, and the modern dermatopathologist, of course, is, is a person like me. And there's two ways to enter the specialty now. Uh, Derrier and people like that were just dermatopathologists by simply doing it. But now you have these two paths. You can either be a board-certified dermatologist like me, that's the minority of people. Or you can be a board certified general pathologist. That's the majority of people. And then you go on to do a dermato, uh, dermatopathology fellowship. And your program might vary quite a bit. If you're like me, uh, you know, I, I was already a, a chief resident at University of Texas, huge volumes of patients. I'd seen many, many, many fold patients more than the average resident. I didn't need to see any more patients. I just needed to practice dermatopathology. And so my program was skewed a little bit in that direction. Well, you can think if you're a general pathologist, you probably haven't even seen patients, and you probably went into pathology for the reason that you didn't enjoy seeing patients very much. Uh, so, so those people, kind of their fellowships tend to be a little bit more heavy in trying to get those people in clinic at least a little bit. And you're supposed to see 1,000 patients by the end of your fellowship to be able to sit for the exam. But one thing to remember is that if you're on this side of the fence, you've probably seen a lot of patients. But if you're on this side of the fence, you probably haven't seen that many patients. In fact, you guys have probably seen more patients in a few months than a dermatopathologist has seen in their entire career if they followed this route here. So, so keep in mind, not everybody's knowledge and depth in dermatology is the same when they're a dermatopathologist. So, Recently, there's been several studies about melanoma rates and biopsy rates and things like that. And I don't want to get into that whole argument, but I want to show you one thing. Uh, uh, from the time period of 1986 to 2001, they tracked kind of the rates of biopsies and the rates of melanoma diagnoses. And they found amazingly that the biopsy rate for people who went up, uh, who are over 65 years of age, went up two and a half folds. So we're doing two and a half times more biopsies in 2001 than we were doing in 1986. And I'd say we're probably even doing two and a half times more biopsies now than we were in 2001. So every year the number of biopsies performed in the United States goes up. And the number of uh, melanomas also goes up. And in fact, it goes up at kind of the same interesting uh, rate, which suggests that maybe they're linear here. Be because there's a linear relationship between the number of biopsies and the melanoma results that you get. But that's a whole other argument. Actually, other doctors could probably speak to that more. But the important point I want you to take away from this slide is we're doing more and more and more biopsies every year, more and more biopsies. My business has grown 41% in the last couple years. Uh, so so every, every day I'm looking at more biopsies. I'm spending more time in the lab, et cetera, et cetera. 
But melanoma and, and misdiagnosis of melanoma and the misdiagnosis of skin cancer in general is a huge part of me uh, medical litigation in dermatology. In fact, uh, of all the things, inflammatory disease, you know, I miss a rash, I miss tinea, I miss something like that. The patient goes on, everybody's well, there's really no reason to sue anybody, there's no money at stake, anything like that. But the misdiagnosis of skin cancer melanoma is a huge problem. And in fact, if you look at the data, it turns out that about 10% of all claims against pathologists, about 15% of all claims against dermatologists, i.e. you guys as well, uh, involve missed diagnoses of skin cancer or melanoma. So that's where this talk is kind of heavy, is on neoplastic things, a little bit more so than, than uh, uh, inflammatory disease, because it's such a problem. Really, this is a huge deal in, in medical malpractice. And in fact, when you look at all the data, and, and a guy named David Troxel, he used to be the head of doctor's company. Some of you guys probably have doctor's company as your malpractice insurance. It's a very, very big insurer, huge in, in the Western uh, United States. They actually looked at all the data and they found that melanoma was the second largest cause of litigation overall behind breast cancer. Behind breast cancer. So breast cancer and melanoma are huge sources of error and medical legal uh, uh, cases in dermatology. Most of those cases involve false negatives. So I, I see a biopsy, I say it's a nevus, and it actually ends up being a melanoma. That's a false negative. So 95% of those cases are false negative, but 5% of them are false positive. There's now a problem with, I say it's a melanoma, and it ends up not being a melanoma. That actually is a source of litigation now. So I, I say it's a melanoma, and it ends up being a Spitz nevus, and, and the patient had this huge uh, surgery and this huge sentinel lymph node examination, and they didn't need it. So medical errors, uh, there's, there's good data on medical errors, and they're not, there's sort of an interesting trend. Let me explain it to you this way. Uh, they, there's this huge, very famous study. The study's extremely famous among people that are interested in the subject like me. So Harvard Malpractice Study looked at, at 31,000 medical records in 1990, and they were looking for negligence, and it was, they used a panel of actual doctors. They didn't use uh, uh, nursing assistants or anything like that, or, or, or uh, actuaries or anything like that. They actually used physicians to decide if negligence had occurred in these 31,000 medical records. And amazingly, they found one in 25 people had been harmed from some kind of medical error. So that's pretty amazing. 4% of people had some kind of medical error in their chart that could be identified just by the chart alone. But interestingly, only 4% of those people who were actually injured, so 1 in 25 out of 1 in 25, only a very tiny number of people actually made any claim regarding that malpractice. So most people actually just either didn't know, didn't quite understand the gravity, didn't care, weren't that kind of person, whatever it was, no uh, litigation arose in most of those situations. In fact, only in one of 625 cases was a claim actually filed. And so that's a good feeling thing, you know, but, but it's, uh, it's only worth, you know, a little bit in the end because, you know, 1.5 million uh, animals, uh, mostly wildebeest but some zebras, cross the Serengeti every single year. Every single year, huge number of animals move across the Serengeti.
Um, but if there's one that's singled out by a lion or an alligator or a, a hippopotamus or anything else, he doesn't take any good fortune uh, or he doesn't take any solace in the good fortune of all his others. You know, he doesn't feel good, well, gosh, I got eaten, but every single other person made it uh, across the Serengeti. He's pretty upset. <laughs> so. Ignorance isn't bliss, and it would be nice to learn a little bit about the subject matter, about dermatopathology, such that you could practice a little bit more carefully, and you could understand maybe the more the gravity of what's contained in the report. Uh, and they did this in other fields as well. In fact, anesthesiology used to have a huge, huge malpractice rate and huge premiums. And they actually started something called a closed case file where their members, the members of the American Board of Anesthesia, would send in cases that were settled or, or, or fought or, or lost or anything else, and they would take the data out of those cases, out of those medical legal cases, and they would look for trends, and then they would alert the membership as to a problem. Oh, we're all having problems with this machine or this agent or, or something like that. And their malpractice rates actually went down, and even though their, their increase, the premium is increased, it's increased with inflation now instead of increasing kind of exponentially above inflation. So ignorance isn't bliss, and it's good to learn new things that could prevent you uh, uh, from, uh, from uh, falling into to, to bad patterns of behavior, getting into trouble. And it's not only good for you, it's good for your patients as well, because in the end, you provide better care that way. So the question I kept uh, asking myself is, how much does the audience know about really procuring a specimen, and, and how much do they actually know about processing the specimen? And I would guess that at the end of this lecture, you'll actually know more than your supervising doctors actually do. Each year, the dermatology, you know, dermatology used to take great pride in being, uh, you know, giving dermatopathology education to all the residents, uh, and, and, but in truth, I think that's actually moving down lower on the list as, as things like fillers and cosmetics and things have to consume more time in education. I would bet you'll actually know more about this uh, than, than some of the dermatologists that you work for know. So with a little knowledge, I, I would theorize that you can be a better consumer of dermatopathology services, and you're probably all consuming a lot of dermatopathology services. But first, we kind of probably need to know a little bit about how dermatopathology operates. So you do a biopsy, whether you do a saucerization or a punch or anything like that, and you place it in formalin. And the reason you put it in 10% neutral buffered formalin is because you want to, to stop the degradation process. And what the formalin does is it arrests all the lysine residues and things, and it keeps the protein from breaking down before it gets to my office. Uh, so that the cells are intact and they can be examined and things like that. But you actually need, and I'll speak to this later, this is actually a critical step. And in today's age where they rush, 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 we actually have some biopsies that don't sit in formalin long enough to actually be good biopsies. And you have to have a certain volume. You're supposed to have a 10 to 1 volume. It's not like cram all you can into the can and then seal it up. It's not like uh, what's the, the, the UPS, the, the Postal Service does that. It packs, it ships thing. That's not a good idea. Uh, for these bottles. You're supposed to actually, if you have an excision or something, you're supposed to actually go get a urine cup and put, urine, put the specimen in the urine cup and then put formalin on top of that. You're supposed to have a 10 to 1 volume such that it pickles really good. And every day I get specimens at my office that just look like they must have put their foot up on the countertop uh, to, to get that specimen into the bottle. Uh, and that, that's not a good idea. 
So then it, it comes to the lab and it gets a session. This is our session station at my lab. And you'll notice we have a barcode reader. We assign a barcode as soon as we can because there's studies that if you keep a barcode through the whole process, it does a lot better than people kind of writing in pencil on the side of slides and writing on pencil on the side of, side of cassettes and things like that. So we barcode it as soon as we can. And it gets, quote, a session. That means I take legal responsibility for the specimen. It's now my specimen at my laboratory. If there's something wrong, we might contact you by fax or contact you by the computer. Our computer will automatically email some of these offices and tell them, oh, you forgot the name, you forgot the date of birth, something like that. Um, but that's the accessioning process. Then it goes to grossing. This is a grossing station. It's all ventilated. It has running water. It has a machine to get rid of formalin uh, that, that's left over in the bottle. But this is a fancy grossing station. Probably costs you know, seven times what it actually should because it's a medical grossing station. Um, but uh, this is where the specimen uh, gets taken out of the bottle and kind of made into something that could ultimately be embedded in paraffin. And so this is a punch biopsy, a little old punch biopsy. And most punch biopsies, if they're of certain size, will get bisected. So that's what we did right here. We kind of divided the section, uh, divided the little punch biopsy in half. And it didn't get any ink because it's an inflammatory process. You wrote rule out dermatitis or something on it. So it doesn't get any ink. Here's a shave biopsy. The shave biopsy, it must have said, like, rule out neoplasm or rule out non-melanoma skin cancer or something like that. So it gets inked. Does everybody understand what that means? means ink is placed all around the true edge of the specimen, such that when I'm looking at it under the microscope, I see ink at the edge of the specimen, and I know that it's a real surgical edge. If I see an edge under the microscope that doesn't have ink, then I suspect that it's some kind of artifact or something like that. So, so neoplastic processes get ink, and most, uh, most shave biopsies will be bisected if they're really big shape biopsy, they might be trisected or quadrisected. And you can see this in the gross description now if you read your report, which we'll talk about later. And then this is an excision, and it gets cut into a whole bunch of pieces of bread. It's basically bread loafed here. So a whole bunch of loaves of bread. Why do we have to put these all into smaller pieces? Why can't we just take this and process it all the way through? Well, one, it won't actually make it through processing that big. The pickling juice and everything that we use won't penetrate the specimen that big. And number two, it wouldn't fit on a glass slide. Uh, we, how would we put it in wax or anything like that? It'd be like this big Mongo piece of wax. It wouldn't work. So, so we cut it up into little pieces. And in fact, each one of these little pieces becomes a block. Have you ever heard of block? So this would be one block. This would be another block. This would be a third block, fourth block, fifth block, six block, seven blocks. So that specimen would become in and ultimately reach my desk in seven different pieces or seven different glass slides from seven different blocks of tissue. And that's going to be really important. I'll explain more about that later on. And then ultimately, all these little pieces get put in these microcassettes. And again, ours are barcoded and everything. Some people write on them in hand by pencil or pen or something like that. But ours are barcoded and everything. And that's the modern trend now to do it that way. But they're put in these little plastic cassettes. So this tissue will be loaded in this cassette. And then the cassette goes into a processor. And this is a processor. We have three of them. So they're big processors. They're loaded into these uh, trays called retorts. And then the retorts are lowered into this fluid. And look at this machine. It's got all these different fluids down here, these embalming type of fluids, if you will. So it's got alcohols of different strengths. And it's got xylene. And so what will happen 
is this specimen over a few hours, maybe two to six hours, it will get infused with different levels of alcohols, different concentrations of alcohols uh, to remove the water. And then the alcohol will be removed with xylene. And so in the end, you have a dehydrated specimen. There's no longer any water or any fat in it. That's what's been removed from the process. And then what happens next is that little dehydrated specimen is put on a tray and it's infused with paraffin, paraffin wax. And so that makes the specimen firm and hard so that you can cut it. But all the water has been replaced with paraffin. And so you end up with little wax blocks. Here's an example of the little wax block right here. And this is called a microtome. And a microtome cuts things at a very, very, very thin uh, to a very, very thin degree. So we cut our blocks at three and a half microns. So a micron is one millionth of a meter. So, so we're cutting it at three millionths of a meter thick, such that light will pass through the specimen. So we're cutting those ribbons of tissue. You can see the ribbons of tissue coming off the block uh, right here. So this machine just moves up and down and cuts the, the, the sections. And then those sections are placed on glass slides, and then this machine automatically stains them. These, these little uh, buckets right here are all filled with different kinds of chemicals to stain it. So it's stained with hematoxylin and eosin, H and E. And then a cover slip is automatically put on it. So through all those processes, we ultimately end up with a glass slide that goes to my desk, and I look at your history on your paperwork, and I look at the microscope, and I decide what your patient has. So that's all the steps. And this is the end result. So I don't know if this is insulting to some of you, excuse me, but uh, this purple thing right here, this purple band, that's the epidermis. You know, it stains very, very purple, very, very hematoxylin rich. So there's hematoxylin and eosin. Those are the two stains that we use most often in dermatology, H and E. So the hematoxylin stains the epidermis and makes it purple, very purple. Here's the stratum corneum up on top, the dead skin cells that form the protective barrier of the skin. And then down here is the dermis, this pink area. This pink area is all loose collagen fibrils. Everybody see the intersecting collagen fibrils and things? Then you have other things like this is a hair right here. This is a hair that goes up to the surface right here. And these are oil glands right here. And this is a dilated lymphatic vessel. And then you have some blood vessels here and there. And so that's what I'm looking at all day long is H&E stain slots. And that's the end product. <coughs> But think for a minute how many different steps I described. I've got you guys doing the biopsy. I've got the courier bringing me the specimen. I've got the logger taking it into the laboratory. I've got the grocer making it into little pieces of tissue that are safe for the processor. I've got the embedder taking those blocks out of the processor and making wax blocks. I've got the cutter making the sections. I've got the person labeling those sections. I've got me taking an analysis. Then I, I dictate by voice into a, into a computer system my analysis. I've got another transcriptionist typing that report. Then that typed report comes back to me for signature online, and then somebody else takes that report and either faxes it to you or hand delivers it to you. So th how many people do you think are involved in that process? Probably at, our, at my laboratory, 16 to 20 people are involved there. Does that make you feel good or bad? <laughs> it makes me feel bad. I wish I could do it all, because then I'd know that it was done right. I'd, I'd feel more confident about it. But each day I have dozens of people who I'm depending upon to not screw it up, <laughs> uh, that not, not transpose a number, not put the wrong piece of tissue on the wrong slide, 
or anything else. So maybe you don't really appreciate how many different people are involved in your specimen and how many different points there are for something to go wrong. So this is my first tip. Always take time to find a good insight and accurate information. It's amazing how often I get a sheet, an accession sheet with nothing on it at all. Zilch. Doesn't tell me anything. Or I get one where in the impression, there's a, there's a thing on the accession form, your clinical impression, and it says left arm. Well, that's not really an impression. That, that's, that's the anatomic location. Uh, or, or I get a call from somebody and they say, oh, you know, my nurse filled that out. She did it wrong. I'm so sorry. You know, and I don't think people realize that that's an important piece of data that makes me feel confident in the end when I'm looking at the glass slide. You said rule out basal cell carcinoma, and lo and behold, it's a basal cell carcinoma. That's a really valuable thing because think what it happens if I say, uh, if, if your thing says rule out pityriasis rosea or uh, guttate psoriasis and I see a basal cell carcinoma. Well, that's an important clue that something's wrong. And if you're writing 238.2 or rule out nub, which is neoplasma uncertain behavior, or, or something like that on the sheet every single time, you're taking away an important thing that would clue me in to the fact that one of those 20 people involved in your, in your case did something wrong. So it's very, very cheap insurance. It takes you, what, seven seconds to write rule out non-moment skin cancer or something like that, rule out pigmented lesion. At least you've got me in the family of the disease. So, so it's the best seven seconds you'll ever take. Because you always want to prevent an error before you tra trans... I said this the other day, crap in, crap out. That's totally true in dramatopathology. If you put a bad, uh, bad biopsy into the system, you're going to get a bad result out the other end. If you put bad history in, you're going to get a bad result out the other end. You put no history in, you get no useful information out of the system. So, so it's really, really true. When you write rule out melanoma on everything, I don't know what you really thought. Were you really scared? Or was it this big, soft, pedunculated thing on the neck that the person's had for 17 years and you really just wrote that to satisfy the insurance company? I, I don't know what level to take uh, of seriousness when you write the same thing on every biopsy. If you write rule out cancer on everything, it really screws me up. What if I, you say rule out cancer and I'm looking at a rash? I start worrying, gosh, is this the right biopsy? Did one of those people put the wrong tissue on the wrong slide? Did the labor, labeler put the wrong label on the wrong slide? What happened? So, so that, that's really hard. Multiple specimens in the same bottle, that's really a, not a very good idea. You think it is because you're saving the patient money and et cetera, et cetera. But one time, that's going to go wrong for you. You're going to have a basal cell. And I've seen this happen to doctors in my own practice. Uh, they, they have a basal cell that they can't locate the, the original site because they put five sites in the bottle. Well, you have no choice but to go back and treat all five sites. Or, or a pedunculated melanoma that was thought to be an acrocordon and it's submitted with a whole bunch of acrocordons. You can't figure out where the melanoma came from. I've actually seen it happen. Curetting of a pigmented lesion is getting harder and harder to defend each year. And then even things like you think, oh, it's no big deal. I just checked the wrong box regarding shave, punch, excision. Think what that does to me at the end of the line of 20 people. So, so now uh, you said shave and I'm looking at a punch. I wonder, did they just mismark the, the box or is this not the right tissue? It causes a lot more problems than you actually think. So even just checking the right box, shave, punch, excision, it, it, when it doesn't match, it, it makes me think that something's wrong. Uh, and, and if you do it a lot, then it becomes the, the boy who cries wolf. Well, I can't rely on anything those people mark. 
So it takes away an important correlation tool to try to figure out, is this the right specimen? And that's a bigger problem than you think. Uh, at our laboratory, we put different colored ink on every specimen. So one, two, three, four, five, repeat, one, two, three. And I came up with this system, and at first nobody liked it because it was a big pain, because they can't use the same ink twice. We won't let them use the same ink consecutively. So the, the first specimen comes in, it gets black, second gets yellow. But it's important because then we've spaced our colors out and we can actually go back and find an error more easily because we know that the specimen should have green on it. The specimen should have blue on it. The specimen should have red on it. And we can go back and we can, we can trace our steps. So that's one thing. But the other easy thing is just to give a realistic clinical impression. Again, if you, if you wrote something just because you just thought it sounded good, you know, rule out pityriasis, uh, uh, rubra pilaris, rule out, and you just wrote a bunch of things that you didn't even mean half-heartedly, it might take away an important tool. This is not from my laboratory, um, uh, but it's from a different laboratory where the cutter, one of the people on the chain of command, yeah, you know, put the wrong tissue on the wrong slide. And the only reason I discovered this is because the diagnosis didn't match real well, and so I investigated a little closely, a little more closely. Had this person not put the diagnosis on the slide, I wouldn't have been able to tell that the specimens were switched. And that would have been bad because one was a benign nevus and the other was a basal cell carcinoma. So somebody would have got surgery they didn't need and the other person would have missed surgery that they desperately needed to get the carcinoma off their body. So by not providing a realistic clinical impression, you take away one, one clue that the dermatopathologist would pick up on to say, hmm, maybe somebody in the chain of, ev of events didn't do what they were supposed to do. And in fact, this has been commented on, you know, they wanted you to do the five Ds of, of submitting a cutaneous pathology specimen, which were, you know, the description, the disease, uh, the duration, et cetera. I would even just do three Ds, just a description of what was done. Is it a shave, is it a punch, or is it an excision? That's an important way I can determine. Uh, nobody provides me the size anymore. And the size is important, as you'll see in a minute. But, you know, especially if the size is remarkable, if it's a four by six centimeter plaque and you've given me a four millimeter punch biopsy, that might be an important thing to note. So, so nobody gives size anymore, and it's, it's unfortunate because it's an important thing. And then your, your realistic clinical diagnosis, that's just at least going to alert me to the fact that we have a malignancy and you suspected a rash. Or we have a rash and you suspected a malignancy. Something's not right here. So consider taking pictures of all biopsy sites. You know, uh, uh, there were 132 cases over these six years of misidentified surgical sites, and every once in a while, I get an excision that has no scar in it. Uh, uh, and, and what do I do then? Do I say that the basal cell's gone? Do I quietly hint to you, gosh, there's no scar here. Are you sure you cut out the basal cell? Uh, it causes a real problem. So a picture can be very, very useful. And you can also, if it's a dermatology dermatopathologist like myself, you can send me the picture. And I can say, oh, yeah, gosh, I know exactly what that is. That makes total sense now. Uh, so so they're, they're very useful. And the, probably the coolest thing we have in our laboratory right now is we have these Wi-Fi cards that go into the camera. So no longer do you have to take the card. And I understand I'm a dermatologist. What a pain it is to, to take the card, download it, match it up with the right. This new Wi-Fi card, it links directly to my computer. So as I'm taking pictures in the laboratory or in clinic, it's sending them to my computer. So I'm taking away that, that big PETA step of having to download the car, card and everything else. So it, it's pretty neat.
the most uh, the, the next tip is secure a representative biopsy. So, um, you know, every once in a while on my reports, I'll say, you know, consideration of the representative nature of the sampling is indicated because I feel like it's a punch of a much larger process or something like that. And sometimes my clients have called me and said, gosh, I wish we, you wouldn't say that because now it makes me feel like I did something wrong and, you know, it makes me look like I'm the one that needs to go back and get a representative biopsy. Well, guess what? They are. And whether I write that or not, every, every court in the land, all 50 states, have decided that the clinician is the person who's responsible ultimately for deciding if that biopsy makes sense, whether I say it or not. So if your other dermatopathologists aren't saying it, the bad part is they're just not alerting you to bad situations. They're keeping you in, in ignorant bliss. Uh, but it's still your responsibility anyway, and every court in America has decided that that's the case. The clinician is ultimately responsible for securing a representative biopsy. And this is bad because a lot of people think that biopsies are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And this was actually a study to that effect. It showed that the size uh, of the biopsy was going down, 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 down uh, over these years. And I think that's probably the case. I've been practicing dermatology about 12 years. The, 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 uh, the, the size of the biopsies probably are getting smaller. And it probably impacts the accuracy of diagnosis because you have to remember the crap in, crap out phenomenon. So this is a basal cell. Everybody, did, are most people seen a lot of things under the microscope or not so much, not so much? Okay, so it's called a basal cell carcinoma because it grows from the basal layer of keratinocytes uh, from the skin or the follicle and it resembles basal cells. So basal cells sit at the junction between the dermis, the pink area, and the epidermis, the purple area. And so this is a basal cell carcinoma growing down. When it's just these islands right here, it would be a superficial basal cell carcinoma. But here you have this big old nodule right here. So this is a nodular basal cell carcinoma. So, so pay attention, it's actually growing from the dermoepidermal junction or from the follicle down into the tissue. Let me not neglect this side of the room, although there's fewer people over here. This is a squamous cell carcinoma right here. So this is a squamous cell carcinoma. It's these glassy keratinocytes, these very eosinophilic or red keratinocytes growing down into the dermis. And they look atypical to me, because I do it all the time, which means they're large, irregular, aggressive-looking cells. And they're growing down from the dermoepidermal junction into the dermis. So that's just a little, uh, little primer for the next slide. Rule out basal cell carcinoma versus squamous cell carcinoma. Another, no other clinical data is provided. This happens all the time. I'm glad that you guys are shaking your heads because I'm probably lecturing to the wrong person. But this happens 20 or 30 times a day for me out of my 150 or 160 cases I look at. So what's the problem here? Here's the pink or the purple epidermis right here, and it's, quote, transected across the entire, entire, entire specimen. Who thinks they see any dermis on this specimen? I don't see any. Maybe there's a whiff of a collagen bundle right there, maybe. So how can I actually do my job? Look back one slide. Here's the basal cell growing down into the dermis. Here's the squamous cell growing down into the dermis. How would I really, in the end, have any idea if there was a basal cell or squamous cell carcinoma in this sample? I really don't. Maybe I have an educated guess. Well. Gosh, it looks sort of like an actinic keratosis. It's probably just an actinic keratosis. 
Um, maybe if I'm really lucky, they wrote rule out AK versus basal cell carcinoma versus squamous cell carcinoma, and I feel like, well, gosh, they at least said it might be an AK. But in the end, I really don't know exactly what's going on here, and I'd be the first person to admit it. So I dutifully in my report say, uh, consistent with actinic keratosis, see comet. And then in my comment, I say, actually, the epidermis is transected across the entire base of the specimen, and I cannot include or exclude the possibility of basal cell or squamous cell carcinoma. I would suggest appropriate treatment, clinical correlation, follow-up, and consideration of a second deeper sampling, if the, particularly if the lesion persists or recurs. And I do that 30 times a day. So that's the best I can do. So that's what I actually mean. If that happens, do I transect something every once in a while? Yeah. Do the, do the best clinicians I have in my, in my cadre of, of clients transect things? Yeah. Have I ever had a client that transected nearly every specimen they sent me? Yeah. And do I have that client any longer? No. Was I glad to see that client leave? No. I mean, yes, I was entirely glad. The salesman was like, we got to get this client back. And I was like, no, we, we don't because that client's gonna get me sued eventually. You know, and it's okay to transect one now and then, but if you're getting 30 reports back and they all say transected, just, just take it as like feedback. Well, maybe I should just lean a little bit more into the shape. Uh, it, it's an important thing. So here's a partial sampling of a nevus. Just take my word for it, there's nests of nevus cells, which are melanocytes, nests of melanocytes along the dermal epidermal junction, but it's a really tiny punch. You can tell it's a punch because it's got these square edges. But look how sun damaged and sun blasted. This is all this gray area that you didn't see on my earlier slide. That's solar damage, that's solar elastosis. Everybody see the gray area right here? And then there's all this pigment in the dermis. This is melanin. It's fallen out from the epidermis into the dermis. So there's a lot of concerning factors here, but I just couldn't say more than an atypical nevus, but I said, you know, this makes me nervous. I said, there's lots of sun damage here. There's lots of pigmentary incontinence. Please go ahead and re-excise this, quote, atypical nevus. And so I got it back, and here's the little wound site in the middle. So, and the lesion starts here and ends over here. So think how big this was. And I got a little tiny punch from the middle of it. I didn't get any size or anything. Nobody told me it's five centimeters across, and I'm giving you this four millimeter punch biopsy. Um, but you know what? It was actually a melanoma. And here's the melanoma cells. These are pagetoid cells spreading up into the epidermis. Here's a nest of pagetoid cells. So just take my word for it, this became a melanoma. But the problem there was I was looking at a little tiny, tiny punch biopsy from the center of this broad lesion. And it leads to an erroneous diagnosis. And people have looked at this. This is a paper that all attorneys are, are aware of, I promise you, uh, where they looked at the, the error rate of partial biopsies. And they found that punch biopsies notoriously led to misdiagnosis. This is a recent paper, 2010 paper. So you got to be really, really, really careful with punch biopsies of pigmented lesions. Because you, you, the result, and that's probably one reason people think, well, you know, he recommended re-excision of this moderately or severely atypical nevus. He did it because he's worried about what might happen to the lesion. That's true. I am worried about, you know, 40 to 80% of melanoma rises within an atypical nevus. But more than just I'm worried about what might happen in the future, I'm also thinking, gosh, I hope this is representative of the entire process because it might not be. And so it's probably just a good idea to get something that ugly off the body. 
So choosing the right technique and biopsy site improves the results. You know, you got a shave, punch, snip for a pedunculated lesion, saucerization, excision. Shave, deep shave, which I love. I like saucerizations. I don't have any problem with people doing saucerizations. You can't have a clinic that runs only on excisions. Uh, you never get anything done. Uh, so, so I'm a big fan of, of shaves, but there's all these little pearls that people drop every once in a while. Like somebody told this poor family practitioner, always punch the thickest part of the lesion. So this family practitioner, this is a real case. It was published because it resulted in a lawsuit. Uh, and this uh, poor family practitioner had been told, always punch the thickest part of the lesion. Well, so here's the lesion he's confronted with. The thickest part's over here. I'm just going to follow my, my rules punch the thickest part of the lesion, and he got the result of an intradermal nevus. Well, there is an intradermal nevus over there. But look at this giant melanoma growing out of the intradermal nevus. So, so even simple rules break down in complex situations. So you, don't, you always want to keep your thinking cap on. You can't just mindly, you know, automaton, thickest part, thickest part. If you could do that, then we just have a monkey in the biopsy room doing the thickest part of the lesion. Uh, we, we have human beings do it so that they can think about, well, gosh, you know, that is true, but in this situation, I'm much more worried about this area over here. And that resulted in a lawsuit. It was published. Uh, they've actually looked at who, who does sauce, deep saucers or deep shaves. I do. I like deep saucers and deep shaves. I don't have a problem with people doing it. Uh, I think that it's an art. I would prefer that family practitioners not start out doing deep shaves or something like that. But I think after a while, uh, you can get pretty good at deep shave. And there's, a, there's an article to this effect that actually showed that you get almost as much diagnostic information from a deep shave as you do from an excision. I don't mean a superficial shave. They actually did much worse. You only got about 50% of the diagnostic information. Uh, same thing from a punch. But from a deep shave, it was almost as good as an excision, and I think an experienced, uh, uh, smart, pe uh, the hands of, of experienced, smart people, a saucerization can be very effective. Uh, same thing, uh, the degree of certainty from the dermatopathologist was almost equivalent for excision and deep shave, where it's really done, where it's really deep, really has real reticular dermis on it. Uh, that, that's a real deep shave, and that, that's pretty effective in dermatology, and it helps your clinic uh, get by. Another myth is that excision destroys the utility of sent lymph node. I've seen uh, poor dermatologists and, and other people berated by surgeons. Oh, you've ruined my sentinel lymph node. That's entirely wrong. And there's actually articles to this effect, many articles through the years, that shows unless you do extensive undermining or flap closure, you don't ruin a sentinel lymph node at all. So don't let uh, people give you a bunch of guff uh, about that. If, if an excision is indicated, take two millimeter margins, excise that pigmented lesion, and we'll still be able to do the sentinel lymph node and everything else if it turns out to be a melanoma. There's a few situations. This, anybody heard of a verrucous carcinoma? Anybody had a verrucous carcinoma? So, so they're pretty rare, um, but the, thing, the funny thing about a verrucous carcinoma is they're only diagnosed by architecture. So unlike that squamous cell carcinoma I showed you a few slides ago where the cells were glassy and weird looking, the cells here look just right. They look like normal keratinocyte cells. But the growth pattern is wrong. This is growing very, very deep. Think of the epidermis in those other slides with just this little rim of tissue up here. It's growing way down deep into the tissue, way, way, way down deep into the tissue. So it's not diagnosed by how the cells look, it's diagnosed by how the cells behave. And so this is a situation where you absolutely have to have a deep biopsy. 
And where I've seen this go wrong as an attorney and, and a doctor and an attorney both, where I've seen this go wrong is think if I just take a thin shave off the top of this, thin shave off the top of it, and worse yet, I write on the form or my medical assistant writes on the form, rule out wart. Well, the dermatologist is going to look at it, going to look like a wart. Because I just told you, it looks like a normal uh, Veruca, normal uh, keratinocytes. They just grow differently. So I'm going to look down at the path for him. I'm going to see, oh, well, Dr. Smith wants wart. Wart. Perfect. We're in agreement. I sign the case out. He takes it like a stone tablet in a burning bush. Says, ah, oh, you got a wart. I realize that wart's 12 centimeters across, but you've got a wart. And everybody goes along until the inevitable lawsuit. This is the patient. Uh, that I, I have. This is the patient uh, uh, that goes with that, that uh, biopsy. This thing not only grew off the end of his foot here, it actually grew through the foot and popped out the other side. But the path form still said wart. So important to say, this guy has a pedunculated lesion extending out one side of the foot and popping out the other. That would put me on edge. I'd say, ah, that's probably not a wart. Um, so so uh, just, just remember, uh, if you get something back that seems completely implausible, it probably is. There's 20 people besides the doctor involved in that case. So if you get something back that's completely implausible, think about, well, maybe it's wrong. Maybe that's not the right result. Because this product doesn't exist. Uh, we, we joke about it all the time, the secret dermatopathology formula term policy. I can't take your horrible biopsy and somehow make it gold. A at the end, I can best tell you, it's not a real good biopsy, but I can't make a good diagnosis come out of a bad sample. I just, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm as skilled a dermatopathologist as anybody. I'll stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody, but I, I can't make your bad sample become a good diagnosis in the end. Mycosis fungoides, this is mycosis fungoides, the thin plaques in, in a, a sun-protected site, a double-protected site, usually beneath the underwear, beneath the t-shirt is where you first see uh, mycosis fungoides, and it's very, very subtle rash. Uh, these are actually, this is called patch stage disease, actually. It's not technically a patch because sometimes there's a, sca a scale which makes it a plaque. But uh, anyway, they're very, very thin, very, very difficult to diagnose, both clinically and histologically. Very, very difficult diagnosis to, di to make. Under the microscope, this is an idealized case. This is a slam dunk. When I see this, this is mycosis fungoides, it's nothing else. But this is the minority of cases. Here you have these large atypical lymphocytes, just take my word for it, these, these mononuclear cells, cells with just one nuclei, are lymphocytes and they look funny and abnormal. So they're abnormal lymphocytes. And that's an easy case to diagnose. I just send you back a very, very confident diagnosis that this patient probably has mycosis fungoides. In this case, it's a lot more subtle. There's scale up here. It looks like, uh, looks like eczema or psoriasis or anything else with scale. There's a few lymphocytes down here, these large mononuclear cells, but there's not a large number. They're not forming nests within the epidermis or anything like that. This is a harder case. So this is where diagnoses like parasoriasis, anybody got a parasoriasis diagnosis back lately or anything like that? This is where this comes from, this uncertainty. I can't quite make the diagnosis histologically. You can't quite make the diagnosis clinically, and so we end up in this quagmire of parasoriasis, chronic dermatitis, et cetera, et cetera. And so the important thing is that it's a diagnosis that requires clinical pathologic correlation. This is definitely not one, if you really suspect the patient has mycosis fungoides, write down, I really think this person has mycosis fungoides. Because you will get some kind of weird, wrong result if you just leave that box, 
box blank. If you leave that box blank, I won't have a clue of getting the right diagnosis because no single test establishes the diagnosis, even clonality. How many people know about clonality studies? So clonality studies mean you send it to a lab, they look at the T cells or the B cells, but in this case the T cells, and they find that one T cell has cloned itself many, 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 many times. How many people think that clonality equals malignancy? How many people think you could have clonality in other diseases? You can. Bug bites can be clonal. Pigmented purpuric dermatoses can be clonal. Uh, other, uh, your clone study could be wrong. It's just a molecular test like anything else. It has about a 13% false uh, positivity rate. So clonality doesn't equal uh, malignancy. So no single test, none, can tell you that that's absolutely mycosis fungoides unless everything matches, the clinical, the histologic, everything else. And this is an important thing you could do to help reassure patients. The average time to the diagnosis from presentation to final diagnosis of mycosis fungoides is six years and at least three biopsies. So I always tell my patients to kind of help my fellow clinicians, my fellow dermatologists and things. I tell them when they finally get to my office at the university and they have uh, mycosis fungoides, one thing they want to know is that did my doctor screw up? Did they miss the diagnosis? I say no, no, this is pretty par for the course. You know, to diagnose mycosis fungoides, there's usually several biopsies, there's some uncertainty, and it takes a few years to really feel confident about the diagnosis. So your doctors didn't screw up at all. That's the average, that's the, that's the average run for this disease. And then they feel better. They, the doctor feels better at the other end. Everybody feels better with the truth is it's a hard diagnosis to make, and it takes some time. Bullous pemphigoid, everybody know bullous pemphigoid. It's the bullous disease that happens in elderly people with multiple comorbidities, often begins on the feet or under the arms, and these big tense bullae right here. One thing that you can do that's kind of neat for bullous pemphigoid, uh, because you're looking for a bullous disease here, and, and if you do a punch biopsy, if I try to barrel down with a punch, usually the epidermis will come off, and then, you know, then I have the dermis down here, and I have the epidermis floating around in the bottle, and uh, it just looks horrible. One thing that you can do now is you can just go ahead and shave off the entire blister. You just do a saucerization of the entire blister. And that's what I do in, in my practice here is an entire blister shaved off. I just started over here on normal skin. I saw it underneath it and saw it out the other side. The whole blister goes to the dermatopathologist and you get a much better diagnosis because he can see the whole thing. He can see the plane of cleavage. He can see the inflammatory cells, which are also often eosinophils here. And this is a slick way to make the diagnosis of bullous pemphigoid. Much, much slicker than trying to get a punch and then your epidermis comes off and, and what do you do? So here's some general guidelines for bullous disease. This is the blister right here. If you do an H&E, you want to do it with overlapping normal skin so that your epidermis doesn't come off and your specimen isn't wasted and your epidermis isn't floating in the bottle and your dermis is sunk to the bottom. If you do a direct immunofluorescence study, you do perilesional skin. You actually move away from the blister to do your immunofluorescence. You don't ever want to, and this is something I see family practitioners and people that don't do a lot of derm, is they just barrel down into the middle of the lesion with their punch. That's going to be worthless. Worthless for direct immunofluorescence, worthless for H&E. And then for dermatitis or pediformis, the interesting thing, everybody know what dermatitis or pediformis is, that itchy condition, elbows, knees, buttock, places like that, associated with gluten uh, insensitivity. Uh, so dermatitis or pediformis, you can actually biopsy anywhere on the biopsy body. You could biopsy their, their left pinky toe, and you could get a positive result 
on DIF. Now, is it best to use perilesional skin? Yeah, it's probably best to use perilesional skin, but you don't. You can biopsy them anywhere on their entire body in dermatitis or pediformis and get a positive reaction on direct immunofluorescence. The other thing, the other bad thing, who does a lot of direct immunofluorescence or at least some direct immunofluorescence in their practice? So the, the, the worst thing, these are our bottles. This is a bottle of Michelle's Media, Michelle's Media, which is special for IF. It allows things to stay for up to a week and us do the direct immunofluorescence and it will work. This is a formalin bottle right here. If the specimen goes in formalin even for two minutes, it's ruined. Two minutes. Probably even less than that. It's just they did the study at two minutes. So if it goes in formalin for two minutes, it's ruined. We can't do direct immunofluorescence. Nothing makes the patient matter and the clinician matter than me calling him and telling him, guess what? A biopsy came in formal and I can't do the test. So what we do is we make at our laboratory, all the immunofluorescence uh, bottles have green tops and all the formalin bottles have white tops. So there's visually to the technician a clue and to the, to, to the clinician as well, a clue that this is Michelle's media. Because what can also happen is that the, the technician at the laboratory takes it out of the Michelle's media and places it in formalin. And then I've ruined your test, and now you're doubly mad uh, at, at the laboratory. So this is a hint. You know, if, you, if your laboratory, whoever you use, isn't supplying you this way, you should ask them, because you can get these caps in any color on earth. Your cap color on your Michelle's media should be a different color than the cap color on your formalin. And then the, the number of times that that happens, either because the laboratory screws up or because you screw up, will drop down way, 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 way lower by just having a different cap color. Now, it often smells different as well. For example, Michelle's media barely smells at all, and we all know what formalin smells like. So that's another clue. But it is helpful. Paniculitis. There's all these different reasons for having inflammation of the fat, which is all paniculitis is. But the important point is you got to have fat dangling from the specimen to have paniculitis. Uh, so here's a, an erythema nodosum lesion, these big inflammatory nodules on the pretibial surface. They're painful. Here it is histologically. You can see that all the action, here's the purple epidermis up here. Here's normal dermis, nothing wrong with it. Here's the fat. This is the fat, the clear spaces down here. And you see that there's all this inflammation and widening of the septa between the fat lobules down here. This is classic, classic, classic erythema nodosum. But pay attention to where I am in the specimen. Widened septa and granulomatous inflammation down here. Patient's very, very unhappy, has the typical erythema nodosum look because they're a young woman who can't wear any short pants or anything like that. Rule out paniculitis. I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. There's no fat here. You terminated the punch biopsy about two millimeters into the, into the dermis. I, I can't tell you what it is. This is an adequate sample. It's almost one centimeter in depth. I did it myself. This is my own biopsy. I just pushed the thing down to the hub, and even then, a little bit more generous pushing, and I get this beautiful sample that has lots of fat to make the diagnosis. There's different ways you can go about this. You can use a trephine punch, which is uh, a trephine punch is like two times longer than a typical punch. That'll give you a nice sample. Look at that nice sample they got right there. Or you can do a punch within a punch. So here's a six millimeter punch. Then I take the six millimeter punch out. I grab a four millimeter punch, and I push the four millimeter punch even deeper into the tissue. And so I've done a punch within a punch. So now I've got fat. If you don't put some fat into that bottle, you should actually take it from the MA and look at it yourself. If there's not any fat in that bottle, you might as well not send it. 
Because like I said, the, the patient's just going to get mad. The, the, you're going to get mad. The laboratory's going to get mad. Everybody's going to get mad. So if there's not fat dangling, then you need to do the punch on top of a punch and make sure you get some fat in the bottle. They have this new plunger system. Everybody's seen these punches with plungers. They're, they're pretty new. But they actually have a little plunger that at the end of the procedure, you push it out. Uh, you push the plunger down, and it pushes anything that's inside the punch out into the bottle. It's kind of slick. Uh, you know, the, the only time I really use it is for the punch within a punch because sometimes the fat gets stuck up in there and you can't get it out. So it's nice to have this plunger system when you do the punch upon a punch type of theory for paniculitis. Rule out alopecia. How, how would I know what, what the patient has? Come on. What am I, Nostradamus here? Come on. All right. It takes us to the break. Is that right? Let's just, there's a, like five more slides left, but the other slide, the other talk's shorter anyway. So let's just stop right here. We'll take a break. I'll kind of hang out and answer any questions. And then I'll finish this lecture and start the other one uh, in the next period.